How many of you, looking back as when before you were saved, and before you were saved, you kind of got the impression, um, somebody maybe even told you erroneously, that, hey, once you get saved, your life is going to be great. Um, you're not going to have any troubles. You're not going to have any problems. Anybody? Okay. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Let me ask a, a broader question that I think most of us can raise our hands to. How many have discovered that that's not the case? Okay. Just a quick survey of what happened to the apostles, the, the, the founding fathers of this thing called the church should tell us that. Let me share a few things that I've discovered. This is according to tradition. Some of these are, um, are confirmed by the Bible. Some others are, are tradition. Uh, but Matthew was arrested in Ethiopia and there nailed to the ground with short spears and beheaded. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by King Herod in Palestine. James, the other James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown over a hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. And when they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat him to death with a club. Then there's John, the the writer of uh, the book of John and the epistles and the book of Revelation. He faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil. However, he was miraculously delivered from death, right? Because he wasn't a friar. (laughs) Sorry. They tried to kill him. They couldn't. They sent him to Patmos where he wrote the the book of Revelation. He was the only apostle that uh, we know of that died a, a peaceful death. Uh, Simon was crucified, Philip was crucified, Jude was crucified, Andrew was crucified, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, he witnessed to those in present-day Turkey, was martyred and is preaching in Armenia, where he was flayed to death by a whip. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India uh, during one of his missionary trips. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, was beheaded by the Emperor Nero in A.D. around 67. Oh, and then there's one more. Peter, the guy who wrote this book. He's believed to have been crucified upside down at his request because he wasn't worthy of dying the same death as his Savior in Rome. So, what we have here, our letter, one of the, one of the twelve of these, these guys, right? One of the, the folks who suffered greatly is writing to a persecuted church, church with great trials, suffering. And this is the gist of his overall message. What do you do when your world is coming unhinged? When, try as you might, it seems like there's no answers. Things are getting worse when you were hoping they'd be getting better. Well, I have an outline for you this morning. We're only covering three verses. Verse 12, 13, and 14. You all ready? have an outline for you. Four things that start with R. First one, refuse to freak out. Not sure that's in the old King James, but refuse to freak out. Number two, be refined by the fire. Number three, rejoice in your future. And number four, rejoice in his fellowship. So let's get started. Refuse to, to uh, freak out. Verse 12 says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, he says, Peter says, Do not think it strange, that is foreign, uh, surprising, astonished, to be uh, 
taken by the novelty of a thing. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange, that is, new, unheard of kind of thing happened to you. First thing Peter says to you, especially if you're, you're going through suffering right now, Guys, remember, it's all about perspective. Repetition, we've said this how many times? The, the battle for joy in jail, peace in prison, is all won or lost in the mind, right? Peter says, once again, guys, first thing, first, it's about perspective. You are not, according to verse 12, the first person to ever go what you're going through. Matter of fact, look at chapter 5, uh, in verses 8 and 9, Peter Reminds us again in verse eight. That's a familiar verse to some of us. Be sober, be vigilant, uh, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that. Look at this. The same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's one of the things that Peter's trying to instill in us. You are not alone. You are not the only one who has ever faced this thing that you're going through. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is great counsel. Because when I'm going through something tough, like the first song that pops in my head is, Nobody knows. Right? Just me or you guys too? Okay. We, we, we want to throw pity parties for ourselves. We want to say, man, nobody's, just, nobody's had as tough as me. Sometimes we act as if all of God's promises are true and he's kept the world spinning all this time, but this one time with us, he forgot. I can tell you that's a a totally natural reaction, but what Peter is looking for is a supernatural reaction. He's saying, look guys, don't freak out. Now, how do we do this? Well, first notice, verse 12 The very first word, beloved. That will help you a lot when you actually look at the word. Agapetos, it means little loved ones. I don't know about you again, but sometimes when crisis happens, another thought we have is, uh, well, I thought the Lord loved me. If he loved me, this couldn't possibly be happening. Well, no, it says right here, beloved. And then it says, don't be surprised when you enter into fiery trials. Agapetos, it's a a word of endearment. Little loved ones, favored ones. So, first, remember your love. But second, remember that in general, trials are not unusual. Really, we have, I think, because our mindset is we prefer comfort and, you know, ease. We think that trials are unusual when, in fact, they're usual. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's... It shouldn't be all that surprising to us that there are trials as part of life. What you're going through is shouldn't be surprising to you, but I understand that sometimes it is. But more than that, remember this. What you're going through is not surprising to God. God is not looking down and in your case going, Ooh, sorry, my bad. Lisa and I, uh, it's a really cool story about insurance that we can tell you someday, but we were talking about a, a future surgery she may have sometime, and we were saying, you know, one, one thing you don't want to hear, let's say you're, you're going in for heart surgery, one thing you don't want to hear from your surgeon is, whoa, didn't see that coming. <laughs> Listen, that's not a phrase you ever hear from God. 
had a gentleman share with me uh, this morning the way he thinks of it. He's like, God is never Pearl Harbored. That's good, right? He knew that you would be in exactly the situation you are in this morning. He's not surprised or astonished. He's not, whoa. So neither should you be, Peter says. Now that combined with the fact that he loves you, you're his little agapetos, should bring great comfort to you. Turn to Matthew 23. I want to show you something that may or may not bring comfort for you, but I hope it does. At least it should open your eyes to a truth. Matthew 23. Remember again that the letters, uh, the, the recipients of this letter, First Peter, are... As we speak, as we are reading this, um, in real time that is, they're being beaten, crucified, martyred, that kind of stuff. If there was ever a circumstance where you would begin to think, maybe God forgot about us, wouldn't it be the recipients of this letter? Okay? Turn to Matthew 23. I want to show you that Jesus saw this coming a mile away. Now, the context of this is that he is railing against the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, look at verse 29. Matthew 23, 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. What he's saying is, you guys comfort yourselves by saying, well, we wouldn't have been as stupid as our fathers who killed uh, the prophets. But he says, verse 31, Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now watch verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, good, righteous people. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will, will, you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on... On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Um, what he's saying is, again, in his railing against these guys, hey, I am sending righteous people that you might fulfill all of your, uh, your unrighteousness to be judged by God. Now, it's not a place that you would normally find a lot of comfort. But... Those, those wise men, the prophets, all of the folks that he says, I'm sending, who do you think those are? James, John, Peter, all the people that we just read about. Chances are there could be some that are reading the letter from First Peter right this instant. The point is, guys, Jesus isn't going, oh man, what a, kind of dropped the ball there. No, he says, I'm sending. Years before, this is probably, probably at least uh, 30 years later, when these folks are, are, are facing this. Now again, maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't help me much. I mean, just to know that Jesus is going to send me into something terrible. Well, wait a second. You've got to remember that word beloved. Agapetos. Little loved one. That means he knows exactly what you can take and he knows he has a way of working it out for your good. So, number one, refuse to freak out because God is not surprised. Maybe one way to summarize it would be this. The one who holds all things in, in his hands is still in control. And if you've given your life to him, he's still very much in love with you. If you haven't given your life to him, he loves you. 
But there's no way that you can know His feelings toward you until you, you surrender to Him. I hope all of everyone here this morning is in that first category. Okay, so number one, refuse to freak out. Number two, be refined by the fire. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. A lot of this, again, is review. If you've been with us for every single lesson in First Peter, you're like, well, I heard this before, but here we go. One more. Fiery trial. The word is porosis, P-Y-R-O-S-I-S, and it means the burning by which metals are reduced or refined. You guys remember again how they purify gold? Look back at chapter 1 in case you missed it. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this, Peter says, speaking to the same group of people, suffering the same things, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Look at this. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about it before. An artisan... Uh, a master craftsman, how does he deal with gold? He sets it in the fiery furnace. Right? He, he cranks it up, cranks up the heat, and then he waits for the dross, the impurities, to bubble up to the top, and he scrapes off those impurities. Now, some of you are right in the midst of that. And maybe you've been thinking, okay, well, we started First Peter uh, several months ago, and here I am still in the same trial. Hello, Lord, have you forgotten about me? But in fact, I think maybe the Lord is speaking to, to us this morning. Look, I'm still the master artisan. I'm still the one who knows exactly how long to, to leave you in the heat. I'm still the one that's... I'm still seeing junk come to the top. I'm still willing to scrape it off and to rinse and repeat. And again, maybe you already knew, but you need to be reminded, how did the artisan know that it was pure when it was all said and done, when he could see his reflection in the midst of that gold? Guys, Peter's point is this. That's what you do with something that's precious to you, but still impure. You turn up the heat. You allow the junk to come to the top. You scrape it off. And you continue on. That's what you do with something that is worth so much, but still impure. It's absolutely normal, Peter says. It should be expected with precious metal. You would actually be... Uh, it would be a little bit weird if you went to an artisan and said, hey, uh, I noticed that you kind of felt sorry for that gold there and just quit. <laughs> no, it should be expected, normal, that he won't stop until the job is done. So application. Well, in one sense, we could say application is easy. Sit still and let him do his thing. On the other hand, sometimes that's not so easy because we want to be our own rescuer. We want to jump out of the oven, as it were. We want to, to take that job back from the artisan. And what we find is we, we jump from the frying pan into the fire, from the oven into the fire. Look at verse 12. Beloved, 
Do not think it strange concerning the refining, fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. So number one, refuse to freak out. Number two, be refined by the fire. Number three, this is where I hope for you it gets good. Number three, rejoice in your future. Look at verse 13. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. (laughs) Like, woohoo! Some of you are probably looking at that. Let me read that again. Um, is that a misprint? I mean, don't you think it would make more sense, like from our first uh, point of view, if it were to say something like this, but endure to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, or just cope to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, or hang on while you partake of Christ's sufferings. No, it says rejoice. And in case you're wondering, maybe it is a misprint. No, actually, it gets, it gets weirder, I guess, from your perspective as you go. Look at verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The word in the Greek is um, agalio, and it means to exult, to re- rejoice exceedingly. Literally, it means to be jumping up and down. He's saying, guys... Think of it this way. Rejoice now in your future because I'm promising you in your future, at the end of this suffering, you will be jumping up and down. As you partake of Christ's sufferings, as you experience trials like he did, Peter is going to show us here, I think, that what Jesus is in the midst of in your suffering is turning that suffering into glory. We've talked about this before as well, but I want to remind you, uh, some some of you are new, so this might be the first time you've heard it. Um, you guys want to do the call and response thing? The, where, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I asked everybody this morning and uh, I had two people go yes and one of them was yawning while she did it. <laughs> All right. I'll give you guys your assignments. Okay, on my right over here, you guys have the easy job this time, okay? Really easy. All you got to say is glory or glorified. Got it? Let me hear you practice. Glory. Oh, that's perfect. Well, okay, not. Um, there you go. Over here, you guys have a tougher job. Basically, the word you're going to be saying over and over again is suffering, but there's some variations on it. Uh, Probably suffering, reproached, blasphemed. Let's make it easy. I'll just, when I wait and it's a bad word, you guys say it. Oh, I get to say bad words in church. Okay? And and whenever you guys, your your turn is to, to say the word glory. All right, here we go. I want to show you, what I'm trying to show you is the connection between suffering and glory. Ready? 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's... It's tricky, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's... That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of... And of God rests upon you. On their part, He is... But on your part, he is glorified. Now look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Look down at verse 10 of chapter 5. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have 
a while. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You guys see it? I don't think it's any mistake that in this book, every time you see suffering or reproach, um, difficulty, so often you see this word glory. There's a relationship in this book with suffering and future glory. But in case you're wondering, this is not just something Peter is obsessed with. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Romans eight seventeen says, And if we are children, then we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. It says, If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. I don't know how to get this across to you to help you receive it, but there is this inexorable tie between suffering and glory. Um, no wonder Jesus said to those, right after he's, he's given all the blesseds, right? Uh, Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And then he says, blessed are you if they persecute you. You're like, what? Matthew 5.12, he says, rejoice when that happens and be exceedingly glad, jumping up and down. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Y'all, after suffering comes glory. And that should be encouraging in itself, but I want to show you something else. Uh, turn to John 16. This connection between suffering and glory, I want you to realize that this is not something where God just replaces suffering with glory, but instead He actually turns suffering into glory. Do you hear the difference? It's not as though he goes, okay, suffering's done, here's glory in place of it. No, he takes that thing that you're suffering and turns it into glory. Look at John 16. You remember when Jesus was, this was the, the night before he's uh, being crucified, and he's uh, given the, you know, the, the last speech to his, his uh, motley crew. And look at what he says in John 16, verse 20. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into, not replaced by, but turned into joy. Do you guys remember how that happened? Jesus says, look, there's going to be three days. The world's going to be happy. They're going to be tickled pink that I'm gone. And you're going to sorrow. And it's going to be sorrow that you have not seen in your lifetime. But at the end of that, it's not just that I'm going to replace your suffering with joy, but no, that suffering is going to be turned into joy, that very thing. He gives an illustration. Look at verse 21 of uh, John 16. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you have now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Side note there. He talks about a sorrow that lasts for a little while but a joy that remains forever. Just notice the last few words of that. Your joy no one will take from you. Now, let me ask you a question. See if you're familiar with this uh, illustration of Jesus. How many folks here have given birth? Just the ladies, I hope. Okay. <laughs> ladies. Is it safe to say 
there was some pain involved? Yeah? Husbands are like, well, there was some pain for us too, but it's different. There's, there's pain, there's sweat, there's all sorts of discomfort in the process, right? But, ladies, isn't it also worth it? And isn't the pain that happens for just a little while, doesn't it give way the actual very same thing that gave you such misery for a little while, isn't that turned into something that can give you joy for the rest of your life? With possible exception of teenage years, maybe. No, it's, it's awesome, right? Listen, this is, what, this is where Jesus is going. He says, guys, this is the way you've got to look at suffering. You've got to look at it like this is a temporary thing and there's a time coming when not only is God going to replace my suffering with glory and joy. No, he's going to turn the very thing that is giving me uh, such misery right now into joy. Let me, let me ask you this way. How many of you, when you hear that someone is pregnant, say to them, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, you're going you're gonna to go through some pain. You know what I mean? There's, I won't even talk about you know, all the changes that happen to you. You don't do that. Not if you're smart. Um, What do you do? We just naturally focus on the glory on the other side of the suffering. You see? So, the Lord is is trying to tell us, look, that's the way you have to think about this suffering that you're going through. We never focus on the sorrow when we we learn the news. We just focus on the birth. Maybe a question you you might have for the Lord this morning. Lord, what are you about to birth? What are you trying to bring into existence? How are you going to turn this thing into glory for you? Um, just in case you think that this is an, an isolated concept, I got to thinking just in the Old Testament, just real fast I was able to do this. Think of all the examples where uh, the Lord turned suffering into joy and glory. What about Joseph? He was beat down, sent to prison. Couldn't, guy could not get a break. But in one day, the Lord delivered him. There was a miraculous, glorious delivery. He went from prisoner to prince. What about the children of Israel in general? They were being beaten down as slaves. It got worse before it got better, did it not? And eventually, they had a miraculous Glorious delivery out of Egypt. What about Martha and Mary? Their brother died. They they watched him die. They thought that Jesus had let them down. What happened? He came and performed a miraculous, glorious delivery. None of these things, you could have never understood the weight of them had there not been the suffering beforehand. We've said it before, the Lord delights in resurrection stories. Could it be that's what He's up to in you and it's just taking longer than what you thought? Maybe phrase it this way. Could it be that your trial that you're currently in is just act one of His triumph? 
I think so. That's why Peter says, rejoice in your future. That's why the family memory verse for this week is this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Literally, it means when you put them on a scale, when you you have your suffering right now and the glory, he's like, um, right? That's what he's saying. God is using every one of our trials in the flesh. Um, He's using that very trial. He's in the process of turning it into something glorious, shining, beautiful for your future in heaven. Uh, Again, my, my default illustration always goes back to Noah. I don't know exactly what the Lord is up to. But I know that in heaven, I'm going to be amazed at how the Lord worked out this thing that is a trial right now. So, number one, he says, refuse to freak out. Number two, be refined by the fire. Number three, rejoice in your future. And lastly, rejoice in your fellowship with Him. Because maybe today, just just so far, um, you, if you're honest, you would say, okay, well, I, I hear you, I get it, but to be honest, I'm, I am freaking out. To be honest, I don't feel refined by the fire. I feel like I'm being ruined by the fire. And I hear you. I can try to rejoice in my future, but listen, I need something right now, not in the future. Well, this one's for you. Rejoice in your fellowship with Him right now. Notice, look at verse 13. You see that it's in the future tense. It's talking all about the future. But notice verse 14 is not. It's in the present says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you right now for the spirit of glory. There it is again. And of God rests upon you right now. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. See, where Peter is going is this, guys. When you suffer, when you hurt, when you are going through that fire, that is when Jesus is the closest. That's when His Spirit rests upon you. Look at it again. Uh, He says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, look back at verse 13. I want to show you something. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. This will bring it into focus for you. The word partake is koinonia. Familiar word, right? means fellowship. Listen. He is never closer than when you are suffering. Reminds me of the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the three Hebrew children, right? You guys know the story? Right? He throws the, the three into the furnace. Don't you think when he threw those folks in the furnace that some people who were watching and paying attention, maybe making some uh, deductions about God, don't you think some of them gasped? How could God allow the faithful few right here to experience such a fiery trial. Well, you know the rest of the story. Um, Nebi, we'll call him Nebi, looked in and he said, wait, weren't there just three before? And now I see four. And he says, and the fourth one is like the Son of God. Hmm. And what? We know the rest of the story. They emerged safe and sound. But here's the thing. God did not spare them that fiery trial. 
No, but He met them in the midst of it for His glory and, and their good and He delivered them through it, right? Um, be interesting if Peter were to write these things to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't consider it strange this fiery trial that you're about to endure, right? Notice something else too. Verse 13 is not the picture of Jesus joining us in our suffering though, though He does. Verse 13 is the picture that we are joining Him in the fellowship of his suffering. The reason I, I point that out is because I'm tempted. I, we're always looking for applications. I almost said, hey, whatever you do when you're suffering, invite the Lord into the furnace with you. But then I looked at it. It was like, no, actually, he's already there. He's already ahead of you in the furnace. Right? He was the first one in. It says, not that he's joining us in our sufferings. No, we are joining him in the fellowship of of suffering. There is not a trial that you are going through that he is not waiting to walk you through in the midst of it. And if you haven't noticed, if you're like, why don't I know that he's here? It's because you're freaking out. Relax. Look around. Matter of fact, if you raise your hand, it's like, yeah, I was going through trials months ago and I still am. Just kind of a, one of those self-evident things, but... Do you realize you're still around? You haven't been consumed by the fire yet. Maybe you need to look around and, and look for your Redeemer draws near. So, he says, verse 12, let's back up and um, just kind of look at it as a whole. Beloved, do, you, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you, are, you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And then it says, if you are reproached, reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you on, on their part. That is your persecutor's part. He is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. I want to close uh, with, with a, to point out something to you. Uh, look at ch Acts chapter 8. Turn there with me. Acts chapter, what did I say? Eight? I meant six. Acts chapter six. See, verse 14 that, that we're, we just looked at just now. With all of its talk of the glory and the nearness of Christ and the blaspheming from one perspective and yet the glory on, from the other perspective. All of that leads me naturally to Acts chapter six. We're going to read the story of Stephen. But before we do that, let me ask you another question. In the Old Testament, if you had to pick one of the the few guys who really had intimate fellowship with God, wouldn't Moses be one of them? We have the story of him going into the tabernacle of meeting and he emerges after his time with God and what's happening? His face is shining. Right? To me, the glory, there's, there's a connection there as well of the intimacy, fellowship with God. This shining of Moses' face. Well, I want you to see this. Um, Acts chapter 6 Stephen, verse 8, says, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then arose uh, some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Um, and they go on, basically, and they, they throw Stephen under the bus with a whole bunch of false allegations. Um, 
Look at verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. So they're supposedly defending for Moses' honor. Verse 15. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at Stephen, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. That is, he was beaming, right? Glowing. Now, out of that picture, who looks the most like Moses? Stephen. Who is intimately, apparently connected with the Lord? Stephen. Well, it goes on, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Or, sorry, 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Stephen says, I'm glad you asked. Brethren, And fathers, listen, the God of, what's it say, glory, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to read you the rest of the chapter, but if you're familiar with it, Stephen gives this long history of Israel. He gives these guys a huge history lesson. And these are the muckety mucks, the big dogs who are supposed to understand all of it. He gives them this history. And along the way, he points out that they have a history. Just like Jesus said back in Matthew 23 that we read, these guys have a history of killing the prophets and the wise men. All the people that are sent to them, they have a history of killing them. So Peter, or Stephen wraps it up. Look at verse 51. Now, this is quite an altar call. <laughs> verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. What follows now is the death of Stephen. But what I want you to notice is the details of it in light of the verse 14 that's in our text. Remember how he says, look, uh, on your behalf, he's glorified, but on their half, uh, they, they are blaspheming. And he talks about how there's going to be glory in the midst of it. Matter of fact, let me read that uh, verse 14 of our text. You guys just stay right where you are. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, let me read for you verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the what? Glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. They are blaspheming. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Side note. Verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What peace in the midst of tragedy. Verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do you guys see something that none of us would would want to, would desire to trade places with Stephen in one sense? 
But do you see the glory is resting upon him? The nearness of Christ? I mean, he can see him with his physical eyes. My point is this. In your greatest trial, in your darkest hour, that's where he is. If you think he's not paying attention, that's where he's paying attention the most. There is a sweetness of fellowship to be had in the midst of the fire. Are you enjoying it? Are you receiving the sweetness of fellowship that is there for the taking for you? Maybe another way to phrase it is this. There is glory just beyond the gory. Right? That's Stephen. We see him as he's experiencing both, but he has his eyes on which thing? The glory. Not on the gory. Right? Even if the, the flesh consume even if the fire consumes your flesh, the, the moral of the story here is that Jesus is there waiting to receive you, to receive your spirit. So refuse to freak out. Be refined by the fire. Rejoice in your future. And most of all, rejoice in fellowship with him. I want to close with this this time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, how many of you guys know the name? Famous, super famous preacher. Uh, definitely the most uh, well-known preacher of uh, the two, two centuries ago. It says, on a wall in his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque with Isaiah 48.10 on it. It says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. He writes, it is no mean thing to be chosen of God. God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. Blessed are you when you go through many trials and tribulations. For he is there with you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and goodness. I thank you for the saints, Lord. You know exactly what uh, each person is going through. I ask, Lord, that you would be Rabbi, Lord, Master of all. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to those whom you love this morning. Or there may be some who have never even answered your call. Pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself, Lord, in all that, that remains in these next few minutes. We love you. We thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.